progress. I'm your host, Riley Bounds, and this is the Solem Podcast, where we discuss and examine the intersection of the modern renaissances in evangelical literature, philosophy, and spiritual formation. Today, I'm excited to have Andrew Arndt on the podcast. Andrew Arndt is a lead pastor of New Life East, one of seven congregations of New Life Church in Colorado Springs. Prior to joining New Life's team, he served as the lead pastor of Bloom Church, a network of house churches in Denver. He is the host of the Essential Church Podcast, a weekly conversation designed to strengthen the thinking of church and ministry leaders. Andrew received his MDiv from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and is currently working on his DMIN with Western Theological Seminary. He has written for Missio Alliance, Pathios, The Other Journal, and Mere Orthodoxy. He is the author of Streams in the Wasteland, which we'll be talking about today, and All Aflame. Andrew lives in Colorado Springs with his wife, Mandy, and their four children. More information will be given in the show notes, including a link to pre-order Streams in the Wasteland and his personal website if you want to find out more. So, Andrew, welcome, and thanks for joining me today. Good to be here. Thanks for having me, Riley. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're going to be talking about Streams in the Wasteland today, your new book. So first, just uh, give us a general overview. What is it really about? Uh, Streams in the Wasteland is an attempt to leverage the wisdom of the desert fathers and mothers to try to reclaim authentic humanity and sanity (laughs) in a very inhuman, inhumane, and insane time. So I'm pretty excited about it. The desert fathers and mothers, I think uh, not a lot of people know about, Um, although the truth is that their influence is pervasive in Christianity even now. So I'm excited to give people kind of a reintroduction to them. Although, as I explained in the book, really, um, the Desert Fathers and Mothers really are a pathway actually to help us see the person of Jesus with fresh eyes. They are one of those groups of people that in a way, sometimes, you know, I've said this to a number of people I've been talking to about the book, but, you know, I just, I remember the great statement of Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy, where he said that familiarity breeds unfamiliarity which breeds Mm -hmm. contempt. And sometimes I think uh, in the church, certainly, and also um, to a certain extent, the Western world, we're so familiar with Jesus that we actually miss him. Mm -hmm. We have him in our sacred text. He's obviously the object of our worship, but sometimes we're just so close to him that we don't see him the way that we need to see him. And every so often, you just need to be introduced to figures that by their oddity, actually throw light back on the person of Jesus and help you look at him with fresh eyes, which is really what the desert fathers and mothers did in the Roman empire in the third, fourth and fifth century. They were Mm -hmm. a revolutionary force inside the church. So I'm excited to introduce um, folks to desert fathers and mothers. I think that they have wisdom that's crucial for our time. Definitely. Um, Well, why don't you speak a bit to the title? Um, Because I think that that kind of ties into what you were just saying. Yeah, I mean, the title comes from that notion of streams in the wasteland. That's, you know, we're straight from the prophet Isaiah, who was speaking to a people that were living in a politically chaotic climate um, and a spiritually desolate time, looked at the people of God and said, you know, there's a day that's coming where streams will burst forth in the wasteland. Mm-hmm. And uh, that prophecy has been fulfilled many times over in many different ways. God just has this way of being the God of the wilderness. He's the God of the desolation. And of course, the person, you know, Jesus himself, you know, the early part of his ministry, he's baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. The heavens open up, spirit of God descends on him like a dove. This is my beloved son of whom I'm well pleased. And what does he do? 
the first thing that he does is he goes into the wilderness and the wilderness is both this place of absolute sort of chaos and meaninglessness. Um, and it's a place of temptation, but it's also a place of spirit. It's a place of power. It's a place where Jesus comes, I think, more fully in touch with who he is as the divine son of God and his mission. And of course, of course Luke says that he emerges from the desert uh, full of the spirit and the ministry is inaugurated at that point. So the wilderness um, in Christianity is this like, on the one hand, it's, there's like this dual meaning. On the one hand, it's a place of desolation, children of Israel wandering around the de desert, right? Mm -hmm. But it's also a place where we meet with God and where we're formed by God, which is what happens to the children of Israel. It happens to Jesus and also for the desert fathers and mothers. What they did, and we'll talk more about this, I'm sure, but, you know, right at about the time, Riley, when Christianity was becoming established in the Roman Empire, it's socially accepted, um, it's politically accepted, persecution is going down since the Constantinian Revolution. A group of people started feeling like not only was Roman society morally bankrupt and decadent, but also they started feeling like it was just like, it's too easy to be a Christian. And, and there's a spirit of compromises setting in, like the radicality is being lost. And so like Jesus before them, they intentionally retreated to the deserts of uh, Egypt and Syria, Palestine, Arabia, and really founded these like proto-monastic communities where they sought God in desolation and they found God. And they became people whose lives were radiant with the glory of God as a result. So mm -hmm. Streams in the Wasteland is all about that. The claim that I'm making in the book comes from Thomas Merton, who wrote about them, the great Trappist monk Thomas Merton in the middle part of the 20th century, Mm -hmm. said that, you know, he was writing about the Desert Fathers when he said this. He said, you know, it used to be that people had to go somewhere to be in the wilderness, into the, into the desert. He said, mm -hmm. but now you look around at our society and our society is a spiritual wasteland. And our society mm -hmm. is a desert. It's come to our doorstep. And so now, and this was his claim, and I'm trying to build on that claim. Now, what we do is we leverage the wisdom of desert fathers and mothers to try to name where God is in our moment and connect with him. We don't have to run away to the wilderness. It's, it's here. It's now. It's all around. Mm -hmm. So I've told some people that Streams in the Wasteland, in a lot of ways, is, um, it's like a, in some ways, it's like a roadmap or a, a key to helping uh, us see where God is in the wasteland and then partner effectively with God. We mm -hmm. step into whatever it is he's doing in our moment. Yeah, I was wondering if you could uh, further explain um, the implication that our, our society is a wasteland right now. Yeah, I, I was just writing about this not too long ago. In 1981, um, Henry Nowen uh, was also writing a little bit about Desert Fathers and Mothers in one of the best books that he wrote called Way of the Heart, which is uh, really just an exploration of silent solitude and prayer and how those mm -hmm. things make us a renewed people in a spiritually desolate society. And he said... He just said, you know, you look around and he said, our society is not a society that's radiant with the love of God, mm. but it's a dangerous network of lies and manipulation in which we can easily become entangled and lose our soul. And so when I look at our society now, this is 41 years after that fact, I couldn't agree more with that. I think that, that statement is more true now than it was before. If the love of God is the thing that lights up the world and if our partnership with the love of God is what powers a just and right society and a spiritually vibrant society. Dear God, I don't think that we're there. You know, I think that we're living in a polarized time, a toxic time, um, a hostile time, divided time. And that tells me that we have been disconnected from our divine source. And, um, and the saddest part about that to me 
is that I think that often Christianity, the church in America is aiding and abetting that in a lot of ways uh, mm. because of its fear of losing its place or its fear of what will happen if such and such a group climbs into power. Um, I think that what happens is a spirit of antagonism grows in us and we start making enemies where God, by the power of his spirit, through the reconciling work of the son, has called us into friendship. So we're misunderstanding our situation. So I think our society is certainly a spiritual wasteland. And I think that people experience it that way, too. I think that they look around and they just go, what is going on? You know, mm -hmm. there is immorality everywhere. Families being smashed to pieces and things are going crazy. Where do I go to try to find solace, you know, and mm -hmm. spiritual refreshment and renewal? It's hard. It's harder and harder to find. And I, I don't know if you agree with this. I think my experience has been that it can be even, even be challenging to find in the church. I think that sometimes the church is uh, it's very consumeristic and plastic and superficial. And churches mm -hmm. become places that are more entertainment driven than they are driven by the desire to open up oases mm -hmm. in the wilderness of our experience. So if we're disconnected from love, we're a spiritual wasteland. And that's a huge claim of the book here. Yeah, I, I, I think generally, I mean, our society has a problem with connecting even at a secular level, but yeah. I mean, in the church, especially, which is especially frightening, I find that people, myself included, are just kind of illiterate when it comes to being able to connect with people. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like what you're what you're offering here is a way to kind of get back to the roots of, of an old way of Christianity that might have been more uh, fruitful in that area. Is that, yeah. is that fair? Yeah, for sure. I mean, these guys and gals, uh, part of what they were doing, I, I love that you draw attention to the word connecting, connecting, uh, connecting. Christianity, I think at its heart is connection. That's what it is. It's a relationship. When we think about what we claim about God in the great creeds and canons of our faith, we say that it's one God in three persons, Trinitarian mm -hmm. faith. So the foundation of all things is this perfect, mutual divine love three persons in loving relationship with one another that cannot be broken god like never started to be that and he will never cease to be that you know trinity isn't like a moment in the life of god it's what god is mm -hmm. and for god to create us in his images we genesis one you know in the image of god he created them male and female he created them both so even right from the start humanity exists in this complementarity of relationship that's what it means to be human is we're created in that divine image. And I think that we've lost the art of that, you know, for sure. Mm -hmm. And the, again, the sad and frightening things of the church, that, that should be our export. <laughs> so we do believe that in the cross of Jesus Christ, God has made friends, you know, and you think about what happens when the spirit is poured out in Acts chapter two, Pentecost, mm -hmm. all the believers were together and had everything in common, koinonia. So what the church primarily, I think, gives to the world is like its vision of who God is and then its vision of what human life should be. And we have so greatly forgotten that. So when the desert fathers and mothers flee, you know, the trappings of power and privilege in a compromised church, what you see them doing, you know, like we have this, and I talk about this a bit in the book, but we have this image of the desert fathers and mothers that they were basically like these kind of solitary creatures that shun society. And that's not exactly true. Some of them did. <laughs> some of them were misanthropic for sure but the vast majority of them were like withdrawing in order to kind of reset love and reset relationship and what they become over time is supremely attuned to the needs of other people 
they become a people of exemplary love. One of the desert fathers says that the foundation of all things, the foundation of the spiritual life is our brother or our sister. And if you gain your brother or your, your sister, you gain God. And if you lose them, you lose God. And that's a powerful statement because mm -hmm. I think that we have this tendency to divorce relationships from the spiritual life. But these guys and gals were like, no, like my, the person who's next to me, the person that God's called me to in proximity with, I got to fight for a relationship because when I'm fighting for a relationship with them, I'm fighting for peace with them. I'm fighting for a generous spirit with them. I'm fighting for the reality of God in our midst. Mm -hmm. So there's an art form to that. You know, Paul says in Philippians one, he says, I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may discern what is best, maybe pure and blameless to the day of Christ Jesus. There's not mm -hmm. just like kind of a rule book on it. It's like an art. It's something that you learn and, they're trying to help school us in that art. Yeah, I, I think that um, most people would be kind of surprised at the way you've characterized the monastic movement um, yeah. because people kind of think that uh, the desert fathers and mothers were just some nuts that went off by themselves in the, in the desert and lived yeah. there. And uh, I mean, so, some Christians even have kind of a, uh, um, a rather negative view about, about this. They would think that this is going against the Great Commission you know, to, uh, to preach the gospel and said, you know, they're withdrawing. Yeah. So I guess when I ask, like, what's a real accurate picture of the monastic movement and these monastic communities? Yeah. Well, I think of number one, they saw, okay. In total honesty, and I said this before, some of them were misanthropic. Some of them just were like <laughs> society stinks. I don't like people. I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> and they left and separated themselves from, people but owen chadwick great historian cambridge historian i think um in his little introduction to john cassian's book conferences which cassian was a guy who went and sat at the feet of the desert fathers and mothers to learn from them and then eventually compiled their wisdom and founded monasteries in his introduction to um, cassian's um, conferences he says that um total isolation from humanity from society was found to lead to i'm trying to remember the quote but he says like moral eccentricity um, delusions and madness. And he tells us mm -hmm. there are stories that are told that people have separated themselves so much that their humanity collapsed. And that goes right to, again, Christianity's intuition about genuine personhood. The personhood is we're made in the image of the relational God. So they, um, at their best, they were enriched society with one another. Mm -hmm. And they also were not rejecting the great commission. You know, the mm -hmm. great commission is going to all the world, preach the gospel um, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They were taking that discipleship piece very seriously. And you see them as you read their writings and their sayings, they still were involved with society. You know, like most of them worked, they had some trade. They'd make, you know, wicker baskets or ropes or whatever, and then they go to the market and sell them. And so they're interacting with people in society and folks are being won over by their witness and by their lives. And they also... Um, Riley, they were radically hospitable. So you'll often see like there are there are these like really wonderful stories of folks that had aligned themselves with heretical sects, um, mm -hmm. passing through a town, knocking on a door of a desert father or desert mother and saying, can I spend the night? And they would welcome them in as Christ welcomes us in. And these people would be won over by their generosity. All of a sudden they're converted to Christianity. So they mm -hmm. most definitely do not reject the Great Commission. 
or run away from Christ's call to go and to preach the gospel. They're trying mm -hmm. to actually recover what it means to preach the gospel with your whole life, is what I would say. It is true, mm -hmm. though, that they give themselves in the monastic movement in general, pardon me, is more focused on prayer than it is on kind of going into the world. Mm -hmm. And in general, I'd say that the Desert Fathers and Mothers are certainly this way, and you see this more in the monastic movement as it grows up, that they understand that to be a peculiar vocation within the body of Christ. That some are called to penetrate new you know, societies that haven't been penetrated yet with the gospel. Some are called to the more active life, right? Going out there and doing things. And then others are called to this life of prayer that actually helps power and fuel the life of the rest of the body of Christ out there in the world. So they're trying to kind of occupy the lane that God has assigned to them. And I think that that's still true now. I mean, I think about so many, I talk about a few people I've known in my life in the book who were very much like that. You know, they were kind of the active types that were out there doing things, but then these folks felt called to prayer and most of their life, like part of the way that they fueled the energy of the body of Christ was through a life of intercessory prayer. So mm -hmm. they certainly modeled that for us. All of us are called to kind of different stations. Um, the habits and the practices of the Christian life are the same, I think, across the spectrum of disciples. But I think for different ones of us, there are certain dials that we turn up and certain dials that we turn down. That's us living in concert with how God's made us. Yeah, that, that's encouraging um, because, <laughs> I mean, there, there are some uh, ministries in the church that I guess you would, for lack of a better word, call sexier than, than others. Yeah, you right. Know, like, um, the, like the uh, missionary to Africa or something yeah. like that is going to get a lot more um, praise from yes. uh from a Christian community than somebody who's sits in an air conditioned room and, you know, uh, yeah. work, works in a cubicle or, or something. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's encouraging that we don't all have to go out and live in the desert and eat locusts and yeah. stuff like that. Um, yeah. I mean, think about how often, like in the gospels, Riley, like people would want to follow Jesus and he would actually say, no, like you need to go back to your town. Right. And just bear, be a witness for what I did for you in your town. And these guys would do that too. Not everybody could live in the wilderness. And they acknowledge that some people are actually like called into society. And so they could glean the wisdom of the desert, but then occupy their station in life, whether they were a doctor or a politician or a bishop or, you know, businessman, merchant, whatever they did. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, I, one of my hopes for this book is not that people go, oh gosh, I got to become a monk. Although who knows, maybe somebody would be called to that. But I hope that people go, oh, okay, like, the place, well, you know, like the place that God has assigned me, the space in life that I occupy, that's where God has called me. So what might it look like to take the intuitions of the desert and bring them to bear kind of on this, on this moment? Right. And I, I guess that, that kind of segues into my next question, which would be, what are some of the practical ways in which we can implement what the desert fathers and mothers actually taught us and how they yeah, did You know, one of the central sayings from the desert was Abba Anthony. Oh, no, it was Arsenius, actually who, um, you know, he worked in the political realm and um, was like an aristocrat and heard the call of the Lord, you know, like just felt like he was losing his soul and heard the call of the Lord. Um, and the call was Arsenius, flee, be silent and pray always. These are the sources of sinlessness. And Henry Nouwen in The Way of the Heart, he basically takes those as the three modes of the spiritual life, flee. Like there needs to be some places in our lives where we separate ourselves from the noise and from the chaos. Be mm -hmm. silent. We need to, like silence is this, um, Isaac the Syrian, 7th century, 
uh, Eastern saint, he actually said that silence is like a sacrament of the age to come. I love that, mm. that mm. when we engage in silence, somehow like the new world that God is making, the kingdom of God opens to us. And so flee, like find a way to separate yourself, be silent, just calm things down, reconnect with the re reality of God and then pray always. Like learn mm. how to make your whole life a prayer unto the Lord. Mm. And you can do that if you're, whether you're a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, whatever you are. So I think that the first big thing, like the first big practice, I think that we learn from the desert fathers and mothers is just the value of having spaces, places in our lives where we disconnect from the noise, we disconnect from the chaos, and we root ourselves again in the reality of God who gives us our true identity. And mm -hmm. if we don't have that, I'm just convinced that we're going to get washed away by the chaos of our society. I think that one of the things that we do now, and you know, it's funny because I'm born and raised non-denominational, Pentecostal, charismatic. So it's, to me, is a subset of the evangelical movement. And I heard growing up all the time, like the importance of having a quiet time. You need to have a quiet time, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm 41 years old now. And I've learned a ton and I've read a ton, read widely, experienced many different streams of Christianity. This is what I know, Riley, is that whatever you call it, that thing right there, that space, which evangelicals call quiet time and other people call contemplative prayer and other people call it, whatever you call it, somehow mm -hmm. that like tithe of your day, that space where you're centering in God's presence is really, really crucial. And I think fewer and fewer people are doing that now. Mm -hmm. I think what's happening in the morning is we're waking up and instead of, um, you know, doing as the psalmist said early in the morning, I will rise and seek thee. I think what we're doing is we're pulling out this device here. And we're jumping right in with checking our social media and checking our email and catching up on the news. And I don't know how you do that and not get swept away by the flood tide that's around us all the time. So I think if people wanted to start practicing what the other fathers and mothers are talking about, the first thing is just to begin to reclaim that early part of your day. And I think also if you can, claiming a couple other spots in your day too, pulling back in the middle of the day to just reset yourself in God's presence, reading the scripture, offering up prayer, yielding your heart to the Lord. Mm -hmm. And then the end of your day, which is I've gotten older here, the end of my day I'm finding is almost as crucial as the beginning of the day. That mm -hmm. the way that I end the day, I can end it, it with chaos or I can end it with um, centeredness and then Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And so m most days I'm starting to power down, you know, like 30 or so. And just beginning to kind of get quiet before I head into the darkness and also to unburden myself before I head into the night for things I need to mm -hmm. confess, things I need to let go of. God, I give them to you. And I thank you for what this day has been. May my dreams nourish me tonight, guard me, keep me. Mm -hmm. And if you give me another shot at it tomorrow, I'm going to go give you my best tomorrow. Something about that. So I think if we learn like nothing, almost nothing else from them. I think we got to learn the value of that. And again, it's not because we're, you know, freaked out by society and it's not because we're holding up the middle finger to society. What we're trying to do is we're trying to love society. Well, we're trying to love the people in our lives. Well, and we can't do that unless we're connected with the God of love. Hmm. Right. So one of the, one of the uh, people you quote in the book is Abba Moses. Mm -hmm. And um, he spoke to these disciplines you've been talking about, about silence and solitude and scriptural meditation and some fasting. Mm -hmm. um, he mentioned that these, these practices don't make perfection, but they're actually the yeah. means of perfection. Yeah. Now we, you know, I, I don't, I don't mean to, to bash 
the church or anything, but I think we live in a very, in a time where we're so anal about getting our theological, yeah. you know, uh, crossing our theological T's and dotting our theological I's that yeah. um, some, some would take that to mean that we can become righteous through works. Right. Um, so how would you just address this concern? Well, I, I think that they are, uh, to me, the spiritual disciplines are, number one, ways that we habituate ourselves towards holiness. And um, so we become people who routinely, uh, Dallas Willard talked about this a ton, that we become, by virtue of the disciplines of prayer and solitude and silence and worship and scripture reading, it forms us into the kinds of persons who routinely do the things that are right. We habituate ourselves into holiness. I think also, though, the spiritual disciplines, maybe the best way to think about them, you know, I think that that's language that a lot of people would trip over, that these are the means to perfection. And that doesn't mean that we do them and God's like, oh, great, good for you. You passed the test. Now you become. But what they are is they're things that put us in the path of grace. I think that's the best way to describe them. And it's the grace that brings us. It's the grace of God, Paul says, that brings salvation. Um, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. We're trying to put ourselves right before God in the path of mm-hmm. God's goodness and the path of his love. So if I'm a person who never, ever prays, that doesn't diminish God's love for me by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm not habituated into the love of God. because I'm not experiencing it. I don't know how to partner with it. I'm not intimate mm-hmm. with it. But the life of prayer puts me in that place where I become intimate with the love of God and I know the movement of God's love and I begin to see God's love in society and I learn how to walk with it. And big surprise, if you do that over the course of a number of years, you're a person that somebody would look at and they would go, look at that. That's like, that's a good human being over there. You know, mm-hmm. fasting is not something that God just kind of goes, oh, great. Yeah. The, you know, five day fast. That's pretty good. Uh, here we go. You know, you get a gold star. Fasting is a thing that allows us to discipline the selfish impulses of the flesh so that we can direct the will into the love of God and the love of others. And so if I do that enough, what I've done is I've, I've brought my flesh into submission to the Lord of love, the Lord who calls me into society. So I think that's what Abba Moses is getting at. I know that some people trip over that stuff, but I think that we know this instinctively, you know, like I think that the spiritual disciplines really what they are at their best, they're a way of operationalizing our relationship with God so that that relationship can flourish. So my wife and I are about to celebrate 22 years of marriage and um, we have disciplines. We go on dates on Friday. I come home at night if I'm in town, you know what I mean? <laughs> we're, you know, making sure that we just have this, there are things that we do and those things put us in the path of relationship with one another so that the relationship is strong. That's what the spiritual disciplines are all about. Yeah. Yeah. It isn't the path. It isn't the path uh, of righteousness. It's the path to righteousness. Yeah. I love that. It's a good way to say yeah. it. Yeah. 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 Um, so this, this statement kind of caught me by surprise. I mean, I really, I really like it. Uh, it's if you don't love, then you don't know God. Yeah. Um, and uh, well, I, I myself and others that I know, we really struggle with, with loving others. So what would you say to somebody like me who uh, struggles to, to love? Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's ripped right out of the Bible, right? 
<laughs> the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. And John is making that kind of, I love that. That's from first John and John's making those kind of absolute statements that just help you see the clarity of the matter that if mm -hmm. God is love, then to know God is to know the love of God. And it's a, at the, at a minimum to be growing in the love of God and this side of the kingdom of God, none of us loves as we ought. And that's why I love the prayer of confession out of the book of common prayer. Um, as you're leading up to communion, there's this moment where the church gathers together and it tells the truth about that. You know, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by mm -hmm. what we've done and by what we've left undone. And then here are the big things, the commandments. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly mm -hmm. sorry. We humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. So I think to be touched at all by God is to be awakened by the love of God. We begin mm -hmm. to love the Lord, our God. And we start on the process of loving the Lord, our God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we start learning how to love one another in an others preferring sacrificial kind of way. But nobody does that perfect this side of eternity. So the goal is that we become creatures that love God and love others perfectly. And mm -hmm. part of the way that we get there is by acknowledging that we don't. So to the person that struggles with love, welcome to the party. <laughs> if it was easy, <laughs> we'd all be doing it. And the mm -hmm. way you grow in love is just by naming it before the Lord. Ah, oh, Lord, there are gaps in my love. Yeah. Help me. And God mm -hmm. is faithful. He helps yeah. us, teaches us. Spirit teaches us. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Um, one of the one of the notes that you make on love uh, is that the very last thing that love does is turn a blind eye to the world. Yeah. And indeed, love leans into conflict. So what would that look like practically for us? Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think that one of the great misunderstandings that we have of love is that love is whitewashing, sappy, kumbaya singing sentimentality. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think it was the Duke ethicist Stanley Hauerwas many years ago um, in a slightly different register. He was talking about peace here. But he said peace is not the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of love and relationship and any peace, this side of the kingdom, any peace that's not conflictual is not true peace. Because there are places where we're misaligned with one another and there are places where unrighteousness still prevails among us. So John says, one of his letters, he says, grace, mercy, and peace be with you in truth and love. And so I think part of the courage of love is that we're leaning in where there are places of conflict, where there are breakdowns of relationship, where there are hard conversations that we need to have. We're doing it for the sake of love. Sin disrupts the fellowship. It disrupts communion. So we need to name those places where sin is present, where unrighteousness is present, because that restores relationship. You know, we just... I, um, one of my responsibilities at church, I lead our East congregation, as you mentioned, and I lead our East staff team and we've got a team of about 10 or 12 folks and man, it can get tense. You know, we're fighting for things that we care about and they're wildly different personalities on the team. Mm -hmm. And there are times when people just kind of at each other a little bit and you walk away from a meeting and go, geez, what the heck was that all about? Mm -hmm. So we have, we have choices to make at that point, either in the name of a facsimile love, we go, oh, okay, I'm just not going to talk about that. I'm just going to kind of deal with that on my own. And if we do that, the fellowship falls apart because there's mm -hmm. a breakdown. There's unrighteousness that hasn't been named. 
Or we do the other thing and we go, hey, Vrat, time out. Can we just talk about what's happening here right now? Can we talk about like how you were talking to this person over here? Can we talk about this weird energy that's floating around the room right now? And we have that conversation a lot, you know, and it's about keeping the relationships with one another clean. So I think we lean into conflict. Um, I think that one of the things also, there's like a broader application of society here too. Like I do think that sometimes, you know, we have a lot of Christians right now that are fanning the flames of division in our country. And that to me, I think is tragic and sad. But I think that there are a lot of other Christians who are like, oh my gosh, everybody's just being so noisy right now. Can we just la, 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 la. Like, I don't want to have anything to do with that. And nobody should say anything. I don't think that's right either. Mm-hmm. I think that we're called to speak the truth in love and we're called to speak truth to power. So love, if we see things in society that are not right, love is going to raise its voice about that mm-hmm. and try to name what's disrupting the fellowship in the name of seeing that thing called out and brought out you know, lifted away so that fellowship is restored. So mm-hmm. I think if you grow in love, I think you grow in your ability to just kind of name things that are against mm-hmm. love. And um, that means that moral courage grows in us as we become people of love. I mean, think about who God is, God, the perfect being of love. Uh, he's also the God of the fiery words of the prophets. And he does that in the name of who he is and what he's trying to establish among us. That's what we're called to grow up and be. Mm-hmm. As you were saying earlier, uh, uh, this relationship is a cornerstone of Christianity, a mm-hmm. relationship to, to Christ and to others. Yeah. Um, I, I hate to admit it, um, but mo- the most relational Christians I've met have come from some sort of charismatic background um, or, yeah, a charismatic background. Mm. What do you like? Do you, have you noticed that yourself for one thing? And do you think that there's some reason to that? Well, there's uh, I mean, that's my, that's my movement, man. Those are my people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there are, there are plenty of rough characters in the charismatic world for sure. And lots of unloving folks, but I do notice among them that there's a kind of ecstatic, a lot of them, there's an ecstatic joy in the face of the other person. And mm. I think about what Paul says. Paul says that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Uh, or what he says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I think that the Spirit produces a kind of delight in us in the face of others. And mm-hmm. so an experience of the wild love of God, an experience of the rushing wind of God, I just think it tends to, I can think of these prayer meetings and worship meetings that I attended when I was a kid that were so powerful and full of the spirit. And one of the byproducts of it is that you looked across the room at these people that were worshiping with you and you just went, these are my people. Like we've all been loved by God together, you know? Mm -hmm. So how can I not see the face of Christ in them? And the church that I'm in now, New Life Church, its root is charismatic. That's what we are. And we worship with great passion. You know, we celebrate the sacraments and our theology of the Nicene Creed and all that stuff, but still the charismatic root, worshiping with passion, welcoming the spirit. And when the spirit moves richly among us in a genuine way, it doesn't lead us into these sort of like private encounters with the Lord. What it moves us to is like, you should just see people like when church is done at our church, the way that they linger and stay with each other and hug each other's faces, there's joy in communion. And that's the model of acts, you know? The spirit is poured out, but the practical byproduct of that is 
selling their possessions and goods they gave to everyone. Like all the believers were together and had all things in common and nobody had to tell them to do that. You know, it was like nobody was getting up and giving a preaching series on our moral obligation to the other members of the body of Christ. It was just the spirit blows out the barriers between us. Everybody goes, ah, what, what, you're in need here? And they give it away. So I'd be interested to see some sociological study on the markers of joy and whether they're higher among charismatics (laughs) than among others. You know, uh, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I don't know. I just know that my experience has been in church together, when the spirit is moving powerfully among us, it always gives us a kind of there you are attitude. It makes us mm-hmm. delighted to be with each other. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, yeah, I'll say. Um, so with with your background in the charismatic movement, you experienced in the book, in the book you mentioned, you, met, you experienced some miracles. You yeah. receive words regularly from the Holy Spirit. You yeah. generally just have this very tangible, felt presence of God. Yeah. Um, so most Christians, I don't think, have this uh, very visceral experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so would you say that they're lacking something in their faith? I never want to really say that to anybody because I'm certainly lacking things in my faith. And I don't even know what I lack sometimes until I meet people that are of a different stream than me. And I go, oh, wait, that's something. Um, but... I do think that God gives these things to his church. I don't see any reason to think that miracles have ceased or words of the Lord have ceased. I don't believe that theologically. And I also don't believe it because I've seen it experientially, you know? So I don't, I don't know that anybody's lacking. Um, That's not the way that I would say it, but I, I think I'm always encouraging people to just open themselves up to the more of God. You know, one of the prophets of the old Testament said, to a king in Israel, and I think about this, this is a little bit out of context, but I think about, I love this statement. He said, God can give you much more than this. Mm. And I think that there are a lot of people who are just content with too little in their faith. They're content for a nice faith of like, a you know, read your Bible and pray every day and go to church on Sunday and try to be a nice moral person in society. But the desert fathers and mothers and many of the Christian mystics down through the centuries remind us that we're talking about the living God here. There's an experience like God is not an idea that we rehearse. He's the living God. And to come into contact with him is to have our deepest longing satisfied. And it's also to experience what Jesus talked about. He said, if anybody's thirsty, let him come to me and let him drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will gush up from within him. So we don't just taste of this stream in the wasteland. We become a stream in the wasteland for others. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is it's miracles and it's healing. That's words of knowledge and all of it impelled by divine but right. so are they lacking i don't know that's not the way i talk about it i try to approach it a different way and just say open yourself up god yeah. has more for you and he always has more for all of us you know nobody ever nobody ever arrives in fact some of the great teachers of the church one of my favorites gregory of nyssa fourth fifth century one of the great words that he coined was like it was epictasis he was drawing from the apostle paul and epictasis means reaching out, stretching out. You know, Paul says like stretching out for what is ahead and forgetting the things that are behind. And Gregory taught that that process goes on into eternity because even in our glorified state, we're still finite human beings. And so we're always stretching out for infinite God. And as we stretch out for infinite God, we expand in who we are, which means that we can take in more of God and we can know more of God. And he said that process never ends even into eternity. So it doesn't matter where you are. I think of the saying is true that God has much more for you than that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. Um, so here we have, uh, 
the charismatic movement coming up again and again. So I yep. wanted to ask, uh, what's the connection between the charismatic movement and or charismatic theology and the theology of the desert fathers and mothers? Well, there's a big, there's huge point of connection. And I think that the big point of connection is the longing for the experiential reality of God. And that is what the charismatic movement is. You know, like I have told people over the years, how do you summarize the charismatic movement? The charismatic movement is God is real and he's here and anything can happen. And I, I personally believe that that's what these folks were about. They were trying to reconnect with the reality of God and they really did believe that anything could happen. So now, and the, but there's a distinction here that's really important. What's fascinating about them is that just to that extent, they also are people of profound, you like, you see the miraculous continually with them and words mm-hmm. of wisdom, words of knowledge, prophecies about this, it, all the charismatic stuff is with them. But the big difference, and I think that my people, the charismatic movement can learn a lot from this. They were so, because they believe that character matters and the pure heart matters they were so wildly attuned to the presence of vanity and how vanity sometimes can motivate um, our thirst for the miraculous. And even if we're, if we're equipped with miraculous gifts, sometimes it even drives the manifestation of it, you know? And so like, here's a great story from the desert to like kind of encapsulate this. There was a guy in, uh, in the, in the desert by the name of Longinus, Abba Longinus. And he was known to be a man who had miraculous uh, gifts of miraculous healing. And so in a neighboring town, one day a woman uh, is diagnosed with breast cancer mm-hmm. and it's, you know, it's the fourth century, whatever it is, there's no way to cure it. She's going to die. And so she's panicked and she talks to the townspeople. What do I do? And they say, well, there's this guy in the neighboring, in a neighboring town. His name is Longinus. He's like one of these desert types. Go see him. He's got miraculous gifts of healing. He can heal you. Okay. So she leaves and she starts journeying towards this town. Well, Longinus that they happened to be in one of the fields outside of the town working. And he bumps into the woman as she's coming into town. And he goes, hey, what is it that you want? And she goes, well, I'm looking for this guy. Uh, Longinus is his name. And he goes, well, what are you looking for him for? And she goes, well, I've heard. And she, again, she doesn't know it's him. And she goes, well, I've got this thing and I heard he's got gifts of healing. And so I've come to see him. And he goes, you don't want to talk to that guy. He's a scoundrel and, you know, a miscreant. And I mean, he just basically trashes his own reputation. And he goes, now, where is that thing again that you need healing for? And she kind of points to the spot. And so he makes the sign of the cross <laughs> over the spot and goes, now go home, get out of here. And she goes back to the town and she's healed. And she's telling the story to her townspeople. And they go, as she's describing what happened, they go, that was him. You ran into him right there. Like that was Longinus, you know? And the story is told because like there's multi-layers. Yes, he's given these gifts of healing, but he was also so dedicated to the notion that vanity has no place in the Christian life, that the renunciation, even of your reputation, like don't build your brand was like what Longinus was saying. That when this woman comes, he trashes his own reputation in order to, be a means of healing. And I actually think that his holiness was because of that, because he was so detached from his own reputation, he could be totally for God, totally for other people. And the charismatic movement needs to learn from that. And we have too many people who are given these really powerful gifts, but it's all of a sudden it becomes powered by vanity. Now you're building these huge ministries and now you've got a reputation to uphold. And then all of a sudden that's where you get things like fake healings, you know, 
where people are so just kind of under persuasion. I think I got healed and maybe, and then the ministry is reporting it. And all that stuff is just complete BS, like throw that crap out, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's where I think that these guys are so valuable is that they can serve as a purification for us so that the things that we do under the inspiration of the spirit, the miraculous stuff, it's done from a pure heart and it's done for the right motives. Yeah. And I I guess that kind of, that just provoked this, uh, why do you think in the first place that we lost the theology of the desert fathers and mothers in, in our Christian culture at large? Well, I don't, so I don't know that we have. Oh. So I think it's there. I just think it's not accessed as much anymore. And it's always the case that things kind of like regular, they regularize, they normalize in the church, they kind of find their spot. So these guys are the forerunners, as you, we talked about earlier, of the monastic movement. So mm-hmm. folks like Benedict of Nursia and John Cassian, they founded monasteries all over the Roman empire. And these monasteries became places of learning places, even of pastoral formation in the sixth century, Pope Gregory, the great Um, Mm -hmm. one of the big reforms that he made to the priesthood in the church at the time was he basically required that his priests like go through the training that you would go through to be in a monastery or to be a monk, which came directly from the desert fathers and mothers. And so even now, like our modern notions of like what's required, what's normal for the life of a pastor, that a pastor is a person of prayer and study and solitude and all this stuff. Even a lot of what we talk about with spiritual disciplines, fasting and worship and confession and all that stuff, it's got roots here. So I think that it's there. I don't know that we've lost it. I think that we just don't access it. We don't recognize it as coming from them. And of course, they're pulling it from the scriptures. You know, that's what they're doing, practicing the way of Jesus. But I think we don't recognize it as coming through them to us. And I think more and more, and all the stats are bearing this out, that people are just not practicing their spirituality anymore. Even if they are Christian, Mm -hmm. they're not walking in the way of Jesus. Why is that? I don't know. I think our theology might have something to do with that. I do think that sometimes we have a soteriology that lays heavy emphasis on the moment, let's call it, of salvation or the moment of justification, and very little emphasis on sanctification, becoming like God. Mm And uh, so maybe there's a theological shift that needs to happen. Your guess is as good as mine on that one, but I think it's there. I think we just don't access it. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've said before, and I guess I'll say it again, that um, I mean, the doctrine of sanctification and evangelicalism has has been practically lost at this point. I I think we're seeing the, uh, the result of that um, Mm -hmm. just by a culture that can't, can't really, uh, make heads or tails of, of how we grow close to God. Yeah, I um, agree with that. I agree with and, that. And it actually I mean, it is resulting in many people even deconstructing their faith, I think. Yeah. Um, so we, we, hear, we hear this a lot nowadays. It's the deconstru- uh, I'm deconstructing my faith. Yeah. So first I want to ask, what is it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I want to ask why it's happening. And finally, what would you say to those who are, reevaluating their faith in that way. Yeah. I mean, uh, deconstruction has some philosophical roots that I'm not very well equipped to talk about (laughs) notes there, you know, the world of, you know, French literary theory or whatever and stuff like that. But the way that we use it now, deconstruction refers to that process. When people use it in Christianity, they're talking about that process where the mental structures of your faith, you know, your doctrine, your dogma, there are questions that you start asking it that all of a sudden it can't really answer adequately and it mm-hmm. starts falling apart. And we're seeing 
more and more young people um, go through this, not even young people, actually. It's just a ton of people are going through it. So uh, that's, I think, how, how you would describe it. And then, of course, at the same time, a person's relationship with the church winds up falling apart, you know, and those things are very mm -hmm. much related. The, the church kind of winds up looking like the bad guy and the enemy. And the sad part is that the church often is at least a culprit in the process of deconstruction. I think what I experienced as a pastor, Riley, is that part of the reason that people deconstruct, maybe the biggest reason that people deconstruct is that their Christianity is just too small. Mm -hmm. And so if it's not large enough to incorporate suffering, you're probably going to go through a deconstruction. When you walk through mm -hmm. a season of suffering, your Christianity you can't accommodate that. If your Christianity is not big enough to accommodate science, you're probably going to go through a deconstruction. If your Christianity is not big enough to uh, accommodate the problem of, you know, what about those, uh, what about people who existed before the advent of Christ? Are they just all going to hell? Or what about, you know, uh, Muslims in Middle Eastern countries that never hear the gospel? Are they going to hell? Like, if you can't answer those kinds of questions, I think that you're probably going to go through deconstruction. So um, what was the third part of your question? I'm trying to remember. Uh, oh, what would you say to a person that's going through? Oh, man, if you're going through it, I would just say, you know, like, don't make life altering decisions while you're going. Some of deconstruction is actually, I think part of it is just the process of growing in faith. I think that our process, you know, the faith that served you well, your understanding of God that served you well when you were seven years old is not going to serve you well at 40 years old. You're going to go through processes where the barriers of your understanding break down. And so like, just be kind to yourself if you're going through that process and don't assume that because you're going through that, that means that you're leaving Christianity behind. It might be that what's happening is that you're actually leaving a form of understanding God and a form of understanding your faith behind that needs to be left behind. Right. So that's probably the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is find some people that you can have that experience with safely and just ask lots of questions and talk to people that have been through it before and have come out on the other side in a good place and see how they negotiated those things would be the second thing I would say. So you got to stay connected to the community. I, I, the third thing I would say is this is your moment to really begin to discover how broad and wide and beautiful, long and high and wide and deep is Christianity. Um, I have not, I, I, there, I, I'm trying to think back. I can say with almost certainty, hundred percent certainty that there's not a person that I've sat with. that's been going through a deconstruction where their pressing issue wasn't somehow spoken to in Christianity. They just didn't realize it, you know? Mm -hmm. So what's the thing that you got a big hang up about? Well, do you realize that like this space here, the space of Nicene Orthodoxy actually provides you a space to have that conversation and to hold that belief or to ask that question? Mm -hmm. So just be prepared for that, like walk into it, use it as an opportunity to learn more about your faith and discover that, you know, like Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth and the life. That means that there's nothing that's true can possibly be outside of him. It's all provided for inside mm -hmm. of him. So use it as an opportunity, I think, to go deeper in your faith. That's, I think what I'd say. Right. Yeah. And um, I mean, there's no dearth of, of resources out there for, for people who are struggling with apologetics mm -hmm. questions like this. Yeah. We, we live in an age in Christianity where apologists are rock stars yeah. right now. Um, the work of William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland and John Lennox yeah. and Frank Turek, they're all, they all speak in very accessible language that yep. anybody with questions like these can, uh, yep. can go to. 
So we did touch on just a moment ago, community, uh, and yeah. how that factors into, uh, you know, what, what, what people should do for if they're reevaluating their faith. So what I want to ask is why, why is community so important for a healthy spiritual life? And why is it so transformative? Um, well, I think we touched on it earlier. I think we're made to be relational beings. That's how God has designed us. So mm-hmm. it is the irreducible foundation of the Christian faith. You know, Christ Jesus, when he comes to us, he comes to us as a human being, right? Mm-hmm. And he calls us into his body, which is a constellation of other human beings called together. So it's the foundation of the spiritual life. And I think I point this out in the book, but I think that part of what we get in Christianity is a 2000 year old conversation, you know, on the most vexing questions that have pressed upon human life. And mm-hmm. there's this like wealth of wisdom that's available to us. So the moment we sever ourselves from that, I think we're just kind of on our own trying to figure it out. And mm-hmm. I think that that's a dangerous place to be. So, and that doesn't mean the church is easy. You're just fraught with pitfalls and perils and um, church is still a company of sinners. You're going to get hurt in the church. And, mm-hmm. but even that is an opportunity to grow in grace, to grow in our salvation, you know, to have again, the, the the honest conversation in love where we learn how to reconcile with one another. So I, to me, it's indispensable. I don't, I don't know how you have a Christian spiritual life apart from the church. I think that that's nonsensical. Yeah. I I think it was, I think Dallas Willard says something to the effect of uh, the moment that you start having a problem in the church, that's not the moment to run. That's the moment actually to stay. Yep. Um, Yeah. So that reminded me of that. Yeah. Um, Well, wrapping up here, then Andrew, uh, if you could tell anybody just to go and study one of these, just one like desert father or mother, like who would, who would it be? Well, what I've been reading the last five years has been Benedict Ward's uh, really wonderful, like alphabetical collection of the sayings of the desert fathers and mothers. So mm-hmm. I don't know if there's like one that's like my favorite. I think that's the volume though to go to if you want to like encounter them directly. But I would say there's one, uh, one book that's really, really wonderful uh, written by former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, uh, mm-hmm. a few years back called Where God Happens, which is a little summary book on some of the main teachings of the Desert Fathers and Mothers. And that's a really, that might be my favorite like introductory book to like what they say. And Rowan does such a nice job locating their wisdom inside the teaching of Jesus and then helping us see its relevance for contemporary society. So the alphabetical collection is great if you want something that's um you know, like one layer removed from that and maybe more modern, the Rowan Williams book is really, really good. And um, this one yeah. isn't too bad. Can you pick that one up? <laughs> no, I, I, I can say it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, so, man. Um, and lastly, just Andrew, well, if you could only, if you could have somebody take one thing away from reading the book, Streams in the Wasteland, what do you, what do you hope it is? The, that God is love and God is in our mm-hmm. experience and he can be found and we can become a people of love in a loveless age. And I think that's what I'd want them to hear. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Andrew, uh, I want to thank you for coming on today. Thank you for your time. And uh, I pray that the book is uh, successful and reaches the right people. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. So good to be with you today. Yeah. Great to be with you. All right. Thank you for listening.